Lord, help us today to see what it is that you are emphasizing and stressing in this encounter, that we will be humble before you, teachable. And Lord, although these things are happening thousands of years before even our existence, uh, we recognize, Lord, that you have something to say to us through them that, that will affect how we live our lives for your glory now. So, Lord, uh, may, may we humble ourselves before your word. May I simply be your mouthpiece to, uh, to speak your truth. And, Lord, would we be a church that is strengthened because of it. In your name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Many of you know the name Muhammad Ali. And, of course, you may, if you're a younger generation, somewhat have heard about him. But um, for all of us in the older generation, he was an amazing boxer. Um, he was a heavyweight champion of the world. But he was arrogant in his demeanor. Uh, and I think a lot of that simply had to do with the media and playing up the media and trying to get the excitement around the fight. But he was also known for his boasting self-descriptive words. And here are some of the things that he said. I am the greatest. I said that even before I knew I was. <laughs> it is hard to be humble when you are as great as I am. And probably his most famous quote was made before his fight against George Foreman. And he said, I float like a butterfly, I sting like a bee, his hands can't hit what his eyes can't see. Now you see me, now you don't. George thinks he'll win, but I know he won't. He was apparently a poet too. Not a very good one, but a memorable one. <laughs> um, but what, what marked Muhammad Ali uh, was not only his arrogance and his quotes, but it was also his style of fighting. And if you remember some of those fights, and maybe if you, this is new to you, Go on YouTube, you can watch it. But what he would do is he'd get out there in the ring and he'd start a little bit and he'd, he'd actually welcome the guy to kind of put him on the ropes. And what he would do is he'd put his hands up, you know, the gloves up like this and he'd put his, his elbows tight in to cover his body and he would just let the guy pound on him. And like, you know, for the first round, the guy's just beating, trying to get him all over the place, and he's just there, and every once in a while, he kind of poke his head out, and kind of like, and then he do this again, and the guy's just pounding away, pounding away. You think, okay, he's just going to do that for a round. Now, what's going on with him? You know, is he, is he not feeling good, or something like that? He'd come out round two, and he'd come out again, find himself on the ropes, boom, he just put his arms up like that, and the guy'd be pounding away, pounding away, pounding away, you know, and he'd poke his head out a little bit, and do the same thing. Round three... It's just the same old stuff, and you're just like, all right, this, this is really boring. And then at a particular moment, things would change. And his strategy basically was to let the other guy just wear out, punching away, punching away, and he would just endure it and endure it, and then all of a sudden, he would come out, it's like, bam, 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 and it usually didn't take too long. And he would knock the guy to the floor. And friends, there's a sense in which, as we come to the encounter that Jesus is having with these religious leaders, that, that this is what Jesus is doing. <laughs> they have been coming at him with question after question. If you remember, Jesus entered the temple and what he saw there uh, disturbed him so much that the next day he came back and he started to turn over the, the money-changing tables and the things that were being used there to buy and sell. And he was, what was supposed to be a house of prayer had turned into a den of robbers, a place of extortion, of money-making, abuse of the poor. All that was taking place. And Jesus comes and he challenges these religious leaders. And of course, they didn't like it. And they hadn't been liking all they've heard about him, but now he's coming right at them and so over the course of a couple of days, they are questioning him again and again, seeking to trap him in his words. And if you remember, they questioned him about divorce. That happened actually in chapter 9. But they questioned him about authority. They questioned him about paying taxes to Caesar. They questioned him about marriage and the resurrection. They questioned him about the greatest commandment. Jesus the whole time was holding his gloves up while they were pounding away. 
But the difference is Jesus would let them pound and then he would poke his head out and he would then condemn them with the very texts and arguments that they were using about their own sinfulness as it related to those things. And all who heard him were amazed and were left in wonder. Verse 34 of chapter 12 says, after that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. Now, in our text today, Jesus turns the table on these religious leaders, in particular the scribes, and using a, a boxing metaphor, he comes out the corner swinging with a, an uppercut question of his own, and it's a blow that puts all the religious leadership flat on the canvas. And notice what the question is. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? And what I would like to propose to you as we come to this text um, is the following, that Jesus here, as the master teacher, challenges his hearers to see and embrace the truth about the son of David revealed in the scriptures. Now remember what Mark is doing in his gospel. He is presenting Jesus as the son of God. He's answering the question, who is this Jesus? He's also answering the question, what did this Jesus come to do? And we, we see the statements of Jesus' intent a number of times already prior to this. But it is also a gospel. It is also a, a, a record of the events of Christ for the purpose of those who are hearing it to respond by faith in him because he is presenting him as the son of God who has come to be the suffering servant for mankind. Now, Jesus here in his encounter with these religious leaders is going to stress the point. He's going to bring it home ultimately that he is the son of David. But the question here is this. Who is David talking about? How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? So let's look at this question um, uh, first, and then we will actually see a warning, which would be the second part of this text. So here's the question. Who is the son of David? And it says in verse 35, and Jesus taught in the temple. What's interesting here is that Jesus is functioning here as a teaching pastor, as someone who is preaching the word of God. And we'll see that ultimately as he, as he unpacks uh, or as the story unfolds. We'll see him pose a question to his audience, then he'll take them to God's word, and then he presses home his point from the text of God's word. This is exactly what preaching is about. So, preaching, teaching, um, here Jesus begins with a question. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, the Messiah, also known as the anointed one, also known as the king appointed by God, was expected to be from the family of David. If you were a Jew, you knew that. That's foundational. I mean, that's, that's central to the Jewish thinking. And here are just a few texts that will help us understand that. And, and from the Old Testament scriptures. Second uh, Samuel chapter seven, Second Samuel chapter seven, verses 12. This is in the heart of what's called uh, the, 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 the Davidic covenant. It says this, "When your days are fulfilled, so God is speaking uh, through the prophet to, to um, David. He says, "When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you." who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he will do that ultimately forever. So here, here is a promise that the, the deliverer, the Messiah, is going to come through the line of David, through the bloodline of David. He's going to be a descendant of David. Then the prophet Isaiah, in that very well-known Christmas text, um, speaks about this Messiah 
And let's just, just follow along as, as I read Isaiah chapter six, or chapter nine, verses six and seven. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and uh, of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of the hosts will, will do this. So here again, we have a, a prophecy from Isaiah that is rooting this, this Davidic kingdom being where this Messiah would rule. So there's this connection then between David and this Messiah and the kingdom that's going to come from that. And then Jeremiah speaks about David's descendant as a righteous branch. In other words, someone, someone that grows out of the, the lineage of David. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Now, that's just a few of the texts that remind us then of the fact that Jesus or the, the, the Messiah, the Christ, is to be a descendant of David. So the point here is that central to Judaism is the fact that the Messiah, the Christ, had to be a descendant of David. The people, the scribes, were rightly waiting for this national warrior hero that was a descendant of David's bloodline. And so just before uh, this, this time in the temple, we have Jesus entering into Jerusalem, right? And what is happening? What are the crowds saying as he is coming? What are they shouting? What are they singing? Look at Mark chapter 11, verses 9 and 10. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, who? David. Hosanna in the highest. They saw in Jesus the king, the deliverer, the descendant of David that they were thinking was going to come and take up residency there in Jerusalem and drive away uh, the Romans. So they have this right idea that the Messiah was to be a descendant of Jesus, or a descendant of David. So with that clear understanding of the beliefs of Judaism, and in particular of the scribes, Jesus asked the question, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Now hear this, we've already established the question, why? Why would they do that? Well, because the Old Testament scriptures, their scriptures, spoke about the Messiah being a descendant of David, but now the question is how? Or maybe to put it a little differently, in what sense is the Messiah or the Christ David's son? Is it simply that the Messiah is the physical son of David, or is there something more going on? I see he's... He's giving them a question that he's expecting them to answer, but he knows that they're not going to answer, so we continue on. Jesus began with a question, but now he continues on with an exposition. The reality is, in this text, Jesus doesn't wait for a response from the scribes. He provides an answer to the question himself, and he's quoting Psalm 110, verse 1. And here's what it says. It's right there in your text. David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Again, let's just read through that. David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Now, as, as he begins to 
exposit this text, I want you to notice, first of all, that, that he establishes the authorship of this text. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you believe that the Bible is God's word? Yes. Now, if you believe it's God's word, and we're reading Mark's gospel, you recognize that Mark is the author of this, although we recognize that Peter is probably in the background who's helping him with the stories. Mark is the one who's penning this, but it is ultimately breathed out by God. So there's a human dynamic, and there is a spiritual dynamic that is going together, and it's the spiritual dynamic that makes this God-breathed, okay? And notice what he says here. David himself in the Holy Spirit, okay? So we have the, the authorship of David, and he's, again, he's, he's, he's using this purposely to say to the scribes, listen, your ancestor David, the one who you revere, the one you hold up, he is saying these things. And not only is he saying these things, but it is the Holy Spirit who's saying these things. In other words, the authorship of God. And so because the scribes believed that their scriptures were inspired, because they had great respect for David, you have a double whammo of authority here that is laying out the foundation for what is about to be said. So here we have Jesus who's stressing that this psalm is from the lips of David and the heart of God. That's the authorship. Now I want you to consider the content. David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, calls the Messiah, my Lord. David calls this descendant of his, my Lord. So the Lord, Jehovah, said to my Lord, prophetically the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So just try and get the picture here. Just try and get the position of where everyone's at. David is speaking and he's saying, the Lord. We would consider that would be, you know, God the Father, Jehovah said to my Lord, prophetically the descendant of David, the Messiah, the Christ, my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. You get the picture here. To be seated at the right hand of Jehovah is not to be taken lightly. There is a uniqueness about this position. There is a uniqueness about David's relationship with his Lord. And there's an elevated position granted to this Messiah. So here is the punchline. Here is what Jesus ultimately is saying. Here is the real question. David calls him Lord. So how... Is he his son? How can the Messiah at the same time be both David's son and David's Lord? And of course, the answer that Jesus intended to elicit was that the Messiah indeed is to be a descendant of David, but he has a more exalted role than that of simply a successor of David, he is the very son of God. Or, to put it a little differently, because although he is his son by descent and therefore his junior in age, he is also in some mysterious way superior to David and therefore his senior in rank. In other words, David knew that his descendant would be greater than himself. <laughs> he knew that this Messiah that was coming was not simply to be a man. He was far more than a man. Now the preaching and the teaching in the New Testament just reinforces this to be true because the apostles, both in the book of Acts as well as in their epistles, affirm these things. Let's look at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 um, and verse 34 and 30 um, well, through 36. I just want you to notice this. It's up on the screen there for you, but you can look in your Bibles too. Here's what Peter said in his sermon on Pentecost. 
For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. We've heard that somewhere before, I think, right? Until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucify. In other words, the whole basis of the argument for Christianity, the whole reason for his sermon, the whole point of the spread of the gospel was that this one has come who is both God and man. He is the son of David, but he is also the Christ. He is Jesus, which is his human name, and he is also Lord. That's the point that Peter is making. That is what he's driving at. And of course, when we get to the book of Hebrews, the writer there affirms that Jesus' supernatural superiority in using Psalm 110 by saying, and to which of the angels has he ever said? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. In other words, God doesn't say that to angels. He doesn't just say that to man. He only says that to the very Son of God. That's the point. Jesus is the supernatural God-man who fulfills Psalm 110 verse 1. He is preaching, of course, about himself. He is the Messiah, the divine human fulfillment of that text. He spoke these divine words with human lips that were controlled by a divine nature. This is all just stuff we have to wrap our, our heads around, okay? This God-man reality, but this is the question. This is what he's asking. This is what he's driving home. Now, but also note this, that in less than a week, this Jesus, this Christ, this Messiah, this son of David would die as a fulfillment of Psalm 22. And Paul would reflect on that beginning, uh, at the beginning of his letter of Romans by saying the following concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit. You see that? He's, again, interpreting now what Psalm 110 verse 1 is talking about. All right? By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus, the Christ. Jesus, Messiah, right? Humanity, divinity, who then ultimately is our Lord. You get that picture there? All right, this, is, this is Christianity 101. <laughs> this is why we exist, but this is the theology behind it. This is what marks a difference between Judaism and Christianity. And here is where the, the, these, um, these scribes struggled. Now, what is the actual picture of Psalm 110, verse 1, giving us? It is a picture of this resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven. It's a picture of the ascended Messiah. Now, I love what we see next. What do we see next? We see the response of the people. There are people listening in. Jesus is asking the scribes a question, and the scribes are going, I baby, blah, 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 baby, blah. They have no connection. Now hear this. Psalm 110 verse 1 was not, was not an obscure text of scripture to these scribes. These were the experts in the law. This was a text of scripture that was understood to be messianic, pointing to this coming Messiah. They knew this text. It's not that Jesus pulled out some obscure passage from Leviticus somewhere that, you know, that you've never read before because the pages are still sticking together, right? This is one that they would mind, they would talk about, they would speak about. This is one that was on their lips. They, they knew this text, but they didn't know the text. They quoted the text. They may have even memorized the text, but they had no understanding of what it meant. But the response of the people here as Jesus is interacting with them is this, and the great throng heard him gladly. 
The crowd was enjoying this. Now, you have to wonder whether they're enjoying the scribes, kind of, you know, not being able to answer questions, or whether or not they were just loving the fact that Jesus was unpacking a text of Scripture in a way that made complete sense because it's right there in front of you. All right? Now, this is, this is where Jesus is, is going, and here's the question that he asks them. Now, I'm going to put the title up here for the next section, but we're going to kind of think of a bridge between these two different sections because I think they both go together. And we have to ask ourselves a question. And the question is this. Why were the scribes so deficient in their understanding and their reading and their application of Scripture? Why is it that Jesus had to teach them what the scriptures actually said when they were supposed to be the experts in the word. What was going on, the religious establishment was now blind to the truth of God's word on so many levels. And the answer can be found in this text. You see, the, the culture, the Jewish culture that is, with its unique Jewish and political undertones had taken over and eclipsed the interpretation of the Hebrew scriptures. This is why they were waiting for a political deliverer. The culture of the day had become the lens through which the scriptures were being interpreted. Since we already know what the interpretation is, we're going to read that interpretation back into the scripture. We're not going to look for anything else because we've already come to the right conclusion. We know what it says. So if the culture demands an attitude or a behavior, then you must read that into the text of Hebrew Scripture. That's the, this kind of idea of this lens. And friends, this is what is happening today all across our country in many churches. Christian pastors and leaders are being influenced by the culture around them and are beginning to look at Scripture through distorted lenses. Now, you know what it's like to go to the eye doctor, right? I mean, some of you don't like it because of the glycoma test, and I totally, totally get that. No one loves to have puffs of air being, you know, shot in their eyes. But when you go to have your vision tested, one of the things they do is they put this contraption on you, and they figure some things out, and they twist this and that and the other, right? And then they, they say to you, okay, which is better, A or B? A or B, as if you didn't hear it the first time, right? It's just your, you know, the, the reason you're not giving an answer is because you realize, as we were praying earlier, we're talking about my eyes here, right? I better get my answer right. This is, this is not one where you say, you know, I'm just going to, ah, I'm not going to care about this test, you know. I'm just going to fudge on this one because who really cares? Your eyes care. And so you're like, you know, is it A or B? And it's like, ah. A, you know, okay, and they say, okay, and then they do some more little twisting, and they say, all right, is it C or D? And you're like, okay, okay, I got to get this one, I got this right. And, and then imagine that those, those lenses were ideas and beliefs that you brought to the scriptures. Imagine that you would be, be looking at life and the word of God through lenses like social justice, or sexuality, or race, or nationalism, or abuse, or grace, or sin, or greed, or poverty, or injustice, or orphans, or prosperity. We could just go on and on. There's lots and lots of lenses. This morning, as Peter was reading John 3.16, and what does he say was right after John 3.16? God hasn't, hasn't come to this world to condemn you. Oh, we love that. God is not a condemning God, is he? We love his kindness and grace. He won't condemn you. No, because you're already condemned. And if you read it just with the lens of says that God's grace and love and there's no condemnation. No, no, no. You are already condemned. He's coming to rescue you. Okay? And so your lens affects how you interpret scripture. Right? And this is really, really important, friends. So if we come to the Bible looking at it through one of those lenses, we will likely come away having made some major mistake. Let me just list a few of them. We would only see things that seem to relate to our lens of choice. Because we're looking for certain things. And so those things kind of pop off the page. And they may not even be central to what's being talked about. 
we would likely force passages to say things about our lens that the passage isn't saying. We would miss God's purpose in the text that we're studying because we're not looking for it. We're just looking for our lens and to satisfy our lens. We would present a distorted picture of what God's word teaches. And finally, we would present ourselves as being biblical when we're not. Anyone can say, well, I'm biblical because I found it in the Bible. Well, but did you find it in the Bible in a place where you understood it, what was being said in its context? See, it's not, it's not enough to say, well, I use the Bible. Now, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about this because there's another way to describe this whole thing, and, and I'll use it. This is, this is stuff that we, we teach in our Simeon Trust um, seminars, and I think it's really appropriate because I think this is what was going on with these guys. So many of our pastors and church leaders are drunk as they approach the word of God. And an inebriated pastor will grow an inebriated church. Let me explain what I mean. I don't think you guys are a bunch of drunks, okay? But just hang in there with me for a little bit, okay? All right? Look up at the screen. What do you see? What does this look like? It's... It's, uh, yes, it's, uh, that, is, that is usually how people view it. It's a shower, and it's a very skinny person in the shower, so they're running around trying to get wet. Um, no, actually what this is, believe it or not, is a, a drunk person, uh, in particular, a drunk pastor who is leaning up against a lamppost. It's very clear now, isn't it? All right? Now, what is he doing? He's not leaning up against the lamppost because he wants the light to shine on him. He's leaning up against the lamppost just to support himself. Okay, so here's the point um, I think is really helpful for us. The temptation for pastors and teachers, I think for anyone who's studying God's word, is to use the scriptures like the drunk uses a street light more for support than illumination. Now just think about this. Do you come to God's word to say, here's what I want to do, and I want to find a way to support it? Or do I come to God's word and say, I want to be under the shining light of God's truth and be obedient to it? Now, friends, hear this. Someone, a pastor, can use God's word to preach from. But all he's doing is leaning on God's word to prove his own point, to support his own ideas. When in actual fact, what he should be doing is allowing God's word to shape his ideas. That the light of the word of God would shine So when we lead on on God's word improperly, we attempt to make it say what we want it to say. If we don't like XYZ behavior, then we'll go to the word of God and find some reasons why XYZ behavior is sinful. And often we'll misuse and misinterpret scripture, get this, happily in order to get our desired result. But what we should be doing is allowing God's word to shine and to reach our conclusions because of God's word. So friends, this is the difference, and I don't have it up there, this is the difference between exegesis and eisegesis. I know those big words, but it's really helpful. Exegesis means that as, I, as a pastor or you as a Bible student, you, you want to be like a detective that's finding out what is the text saying and coming to conclusions based on what the text is saying without any preconceived ideas that would be lenses that would bring some interpretation. You want, you want the raw text of God's word to, to fashion, to shape your thinking. That's exegesis. Eisegesis means that you're coming and you're putting in, you're adding in. So you're coming to a text that says, oh, this is what I think, I'm gonna go support it. So it would be like going to John 3 and saying, see, God doesn't condemn you. 
He's not a condemning God. He, he just loves you. You don't have to worry about this condemnation thing. He is just, he's just one who loves, loves, loves. He's a God of grace. Now, there are elements of truth in what I've just said, but it's a distorted truth because it's not a completely accurate picture. Because the context tells you, yes, he hasn't come to condemn you. Why? Because you're already condemned. It's like saying, you know, the doctor hasn't come to tell you you have cancer. Because you already have cancer. Would you like the doctor to let you know what your condition is? Yes, it would be a good thing. All right? You have it. He's not some mean guy that says, well, I'm coming in, I'm the doctor today, and I have something to tell you. You have cancer. No, you already have it. But I have a procedure. I have a way to resolve or to help this. Well, in the biblical terminology, you have sin that can be resolved with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's grace. It's not grace to say, well, I'm not going to talk about sin, but God loves you. That's not grace at all. That's actually not gospel. That's void of gospel. All right. Now, friends, uh, there's an epidemic, in my opinion, in the church today where inebriated pastors and church leaders are by their faulty teaching growing inebriated congregations. Listen, I understand how you begin to understand how you read God's word, how you approach God's word is somehow directly related to how your pastors show you and model by their preaching how you interact with God's word. If I were just a topical preacher and we just said, well, today we're talking about this topic and I'm just bouncing around God's word just trying to show you a topic and using verses out of scripture, you're going to go home and say, well, the Bible says, and you're going to use the same methodology. Okay, I'm trying to encourage you through my preaching to show you, let the text speak. Hear what God has to say and you'll be better because of it. All right? So uh, we must be careful then that we're not allowing then this, this, this reality of being drunk as we handle the word of God. Um, uh, so the Bible often, though, when, we, when this happens, drifts away simply as a resource book rather than being the very breath of God. And that's, friends, what we need. Hear this. The scribes believed the scriptures to be inspired by God and therefore to be respected and used to support life and living. But one can believe that the scriptures are inspired by God and still misuse the scriptures because they are not willing to stand under them and be guided by them. Now friends, again, this is why we typically will work our way through a book. This is typically why we don't focus on what's called series preaching. Now, it's nothing wrong. It wouldn't be wrong for us to say, hey, we're going to have a series on, you know, the family, do something like that. Um, just the responsibility would be on my shoulders and whoever else is preaching that what we're saying actually is what Scripture says, not just ideas that we pulled from Scripture. Okay? We want the Word of God to speak and determine what we need. So, you may have and believe in the word of God, but hear this, how you approach the word of God is just as important. Okay? Are you using it or are you, some, are you allowing it to fashion and shape your thinking? Now, having said all that, I think this is what was going on with the religious leaders of that day. They had been so caught up with the cultural lenses and the things and distortions that were there. They were no longer able to read the, their scriptures in such a way that, that revealed the truth. Now notice what Jesus says now about their character. Let's just drive in here because he gives us six um, illustrations really of what these men were like. And he's exposing them as false teachers. All right, they should be focusing as scribes. They're, they're, they're ones supposed to be experts in the law. They, are, they should be focused on the study, the teaching, the application of the word of God, but instead they're marked by these following six characteristics. And I would put these six characteristics in three different categories. First of all, um, they were ambitious men. They were ambitious men. They liked to walk around in long robes. 
Well, what's going on there? Well, typically, they, they, had the, they had their uniform, so to speak, and they had this big, long robe that, that had a hem and had tassels on it, and it was, it was kind of like, you know, hey, I'm here now, look at me, right? It was that kind of a thing. Um, they like greeting in the marketplaces. Now, that's kind of foreign to us, but what would happen in their context is, is as they would walk into the marketplace, everyone would stop. And they would give deference to them, and they would greet them with words like master and rabbi. In other words, you had to stop, and you had to kind of, you had to kind of give them the accolades uh, of, of their position. And they loved that, you see. They, they loved wearing uh, these, these adornments that helped people know who they were. They loved the attention they got from these greetings, today's counterparts, are those pastors and church leaders who strut around in their designer suits and trendy hip outfits, who love to be called doctor, pastor, bishop, elder, apostle. Um, Woodrow Wilson once described one pastor in the following way. He said, he is the only man I know who can strut while sitting down. <laughs> you may have met that person, I don't know. Now, my dad, I mean, he was a crack up in many ways, very proper English, but he, I would go to his church and he'd ask me to speak or he would introduce me and he would introduce me as the Reverend Rod Phillips, as if somehow the somehow, you know, gave me levels of accolades up there, you know. Um, just so you know, Pastor Rod's fine, okay? Yes, I got a doctorate, but... Pastor Rod's fine, okay? Um, want to be careful with that. So what is at issue here is this, that the scribes have lost sight of the fact that honor and glory is to be directed to God alone and not to themselves. They have become preoccupied with their own ambition and had lost their sight of their responsibility to teach and to train God's people to know, to trust, and to serve God Secondly, they were proud men. They were proud men. They secured the best seats in the synagogues. These were the seats along the walls, and then depending on the synagogue, the the, the seats that were right in front under the the, the holy kind of administrative tools that they had in the the temple. It would have been the the Ark of the Covenant. Um, But these were the best seats. These these are the ones that were set aside for these religious leaders. Everyone else had to sit in the middle and sometimes on the floor, but not these guys. They got the best seats in the house. They also secured the places of honor at feasts. It was a cultural practice to invite a, a religious leader, a scribe or someone like that, to some kind of special feast. And their presence was considered um, uh, you know, just part of, of the norm and the culture. It would be kind of like, um, I wanna say, I'm, I'm thinking more in a Catholic context where you know, there's some kind of a celebration of birthday and they're gonna invite, they're gonna invite the, you know, the, the local vicar to come and, and he's gonna be there. Okay, so it'd be like me showing up uh, at something you're doing and the only reason I'm there is because I'm pastor. You really don't like me, you don't really care about me, but you, know, you want me there. And, um, that happens. And I tell you what, um, what, what happened, that happened there is there was a rightness to it. There's a rightness to saying, I, I'm going as a representative of God. Okay, this is an appropriate place. But what happens is now it becomes this, well, I am here. Don't you know that? I'm so glad to be here representing God. Okay, now, one of the things that happens as a pastor um, is we go to some gatherings and stuff like that. Uh, you know, if there's a meal, usually they're looking for someone to pray. And honestly, I can tell you, I'm, I, I'm just like, just don't, don't call me. Don't, don't call me. And it's not because I can't, and I, and I, I, just, I, I just don't, I don't want people to just always feel like, oh, we have to revere, revere Pastor Rock because he's here. I'll, I'll do it. I'm happy to do it. But it's not like I have to be the person who's doing it. You guys can pray. You guys are smart. You, you know how to articulate words, put them together in sentences, you know, and, and actually make sense in a public way. Um, it's okay. But people who love that kind of stuff, oh, they're longing for it. I can't wait so I can stand up and welcome everyone. Glad you could be here. My name is Pastor Rod Phillips. I'm from Gateway Bible Church. 
where we love to know, apply, and proclaim the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we would love to see you next Sunday in our church. You see where this is going. It, it just, it's just it's not what it's supposed to be, and it's just kind of everyone's just like, ugh, right? And this is what happens. They just love being the center of attention. That's what's going on here. Rather than simply being representatives of God, serving in those capacities, they're also greedy men, greedy men. They devour widows' houses and make for, and for a pretense, make long prayers. You're like, well, how do those two things go together? Well, let's think first of all about the widows. The widows in every culture, but especially in this culture that we're looking at here, were a very vulnerable group of people. And they were, um, as we see, they were marked by the early church to be the recipients of special help and special care, just like orphans. Um, so in this context, the widows turn to the scribes and to other religious leaders for help and for guidance. I mean, that's where you're supposed to turn. You're supposed to turn to the, the leaders of the body, so to speak, to, to give you that, that help. But, but in doing so, they put themselves in the hands of men who were not concerned about helping them, but finding ways that they could actually pull some financial benefit toward themselves. And many of these were, uh, were, were men who were supported by the people. And so they would get in there and they'd find some way to kind of finagle some finances coming their way. It's interesting that Josephus, written um, around the same time of Christ, tells this story that took place in Rome. And remember, Mark has been written to the Christians and believers in Rome. And he tells of the story of a Jewish man in Rome who played the part of a scribe and convinced a high-standing woman who was a convert um, to Judaism uh, by the name of Fulvia to make substantial gifts to the temple in Jerusalem. She was a widow. Those gifts, however, were embezzled by this man. And, and Josephus records that the, that, um, that the outrage got out from the emperor Tiberius at that time to the plebes on the street, Rome was outraged at the way in which this man treated this widow. See, this is it's even just kind of a, a general cultural attitude. We take care of widows, and to abuse that is a horrible thing. Now, in our culture today, however, um, boy, you don't have to look too far to see abuse going on whether it's telemarketers or people that get in trying to find some ways to make money off of others, it is a horrible, horrible thing. So how does this fit in then with this whole pretense of prayer thing? Because as you pray, you know what it's like sometimes, you know, people can pray and, you know, Lord, you know my need and my struggle and how, how my finances are just gone and I really need help because I can't put food on the table and, and it'd be really, really good if, if there were some people that could help me out with some finances that could meet the need of the dad. I know that you'd be the one who would be doing that. And you see how these prayers then can be really given for selfish purposes. And that's what was going on here. They would, they would go in and pray with the widow, but in that prayer they would be pouring on the guilt and the widows ultimately would, you know, in their terms, they wouldn't sign a check, but they would make donations, right? And, that's the kind of stuff that was going on. How do we see the characteristics play out in our Christian culture today? False teachers are not just known for what they teach, but also what they are unwilling to teach. Now, let me give you three, three areas. This is not everything about false teachers, but I think this is helpful. False teachers preach and teach the ideology of self-made and self-proclaimed mediators of God. So I'm talking about what Mormonism would be based out of. Self-proclaimed um, mediators of God. This is the dream that I had, okay? This is the revelation that I had. This is the encounter with God that I had. This is the, this is, these, are, these, are, these are the thoughts that I had that I wrote down during my devotions that God revealed to me and I put it into a book so I can make money. I mean, sorry, Jesus calling, you know, that kind of thing, right? 
This is all this kind of false teaching that is out there. And it's teaching that comes from things that are extra biblical that are now being taught as truth, right? Secondly, false teachers preach and teach the ideology of the culture of the day. And friends, you can go into um, churches, I'll put that in quotes, on Sunday in the Bay Area and hear pastors preach and teach things that are clearly contrary to God's word. But they are bullet points of contemporary secular religion. That's what it is. You don't think the LGBTQ is a religion? I want you to think through that. It's an ideology that is worshiping something, that is rallying together for a common cause. Um, There's other things we could talk about. Environmentalism could be another thing. Um, But this is ideology from the culture that is being preached as if this is from God, and it's not. But then there are false teachers who avoid preaching and teaching what is clearly revealed in Scripture. They don't talk about sin. Don't talk about repentance. Don't talk about God's wrath or his sacrifice or anything that mentions blood. Have you heard about a a Christian school that was taken to court because um, they were having their children memorize a passage from 1 Corinthians that just mentioned blood and it mentioned sacrifice and it was just too harsh and we've got to remove that. You're, the kids can't learn that. That's just too much. And of course, I think it was the charter school type of a thing and um, they ended up having to close the doors. They're still fighting in court. But why? Because they, they don't, they don't want to get this. The culture of the day just can't handle this. We, we just don't say it anymore. So don't bring up the Old Testament. It's full of hateful people serving an angry God. See, this is what false teachers do. They just won't preach what is there. And ultimately, what does Jesus say? And I'm just trying to, that's a contemporary kind of application, some, some food for thought, but it says here that they will receive the greater condemnation. All right, to him that knows to do good but doesn't do it, what? To him it is sin. James says, don't be many masters because you will on incur on yourself the greater responsibility. If you've been great, a great, given a great privilege to, to be a teacher of God's truth, you have a greater responsibility with that opportunity. Greater accountability. I certainly don't want to be on the receiving ends of those words, do you? Now let me just end here with five concluding thoughts. You're like, oh man, we've got four minutes. All right, that means we have... 30 seconds for each one. All right, we'll try and get through it, right? Number one, what lenses or what lens do I tend to look at life and the Bible through? Now, friends, think about this question and be honest. We all have them. We all look through them. And as a result, we will tend to interpret the word, people, and and God's word, sorry, interpret the world, people, and God's word through those lenses. And here's just a few that might be present with us here today. A political lens. You know, you're a conservative, or I'm, I'm a liberal, or capitalism, socialism, or the resurging Marxism that is happening today. Those are all lenses that can affect how we view God's word and will draw us to certain areas of God's word and cause us to avoid other passages too. A psychological lens that looks to impose 21st century uh, psychological disorders into the scriptures. So Elijah um, was manic depressive. He defeated the prophets of Baal and then he ran from Jezebel. Timothy suffered from anxiety disorder. Um, Peter suffered from opposition defiance disorder. No, I don't. Yes, you do. Um, This this is the kind of stuff that that, that happens. These are all lenses that we look through. A theological lens um, that misses the point of the text because it's only looking for more support on that particular theological belief or theological system. I, I love theology just like anyone else. 
but there might be a particular area of theology that I'm just like banging the drum on and I'm reading a passage of scripture and all I'm looking for is that particular area of theology. I'm not allowing scripture to speak. I've got to be careful with that. Uh, Social justice lens. You're just looking for justice for the oppressed, the poor, the hurting, and the abused. Now scripture says a lot about those people and about that, that subject, but be careful that you're not just allowing it to be the lens by which you're approaching the Bible. A racial lens where issues of race and abuse and restoration are sought. Again, the sexual revolution lens, freedom to love, freedom with gender identity and ongoing. A materialistic lens. This is where we get the prosperity gospel. Doesn't God want you to be happy? Doesn't he want you to give you stuff? Doesn't he want blessings in your life? Of course he does. Well, look for those things and claim them for yourself. We're just a bunch of materialists when we go down that path. So these, again, just, there's more lenses, but I'm just saying there are lenses. You have some, what are they? Be honest about it. Because they are hindering you from understanding what God's word is actually saying. Secondly, what place does the Bible have in my life? There's a reason why children, when they're young, are taught to sing the song, read your Bible, pray every day, pray every day, pray every day. Read your Bible, pray every day. What? There's a reason for that. Because we should be doing what? Reading our Bible and praying every day. I mean, it's foundational. So the question then is, what is your attitude? Or what place does the Bible have in my life? Do, Do I read it? Do I know it? Do I believe it? Do I really want the Bible in my life? Do I want it to speak to how I think and how I behave and how I act? Do I really want to be under its authority? Or am I just a drunk Christian trying to justify my sinfulness by twisting scripture to fit my own agenda? Or do I allow the Bible to be the lens through which I view the world? So what place does the Bible have in my life? Thirdly, why am I serving God? Assuming you are serving God, why are you doing it? Are you more concerned about being accepted, being popular, people giving you accolades? Do you like being in the place of of influence? Do you like being the the center of what is going on? Do you like to have your ego stroked in that sense? Do you like to to show off to others, to look how good I am at this musical instrument or with my voice or in my my articulation of, of, of words or whatever it might be? Why are you serving God? What's your motivation? Is it for God and for his glory? Or is it really all about you? And you might even add a little sub-question to that, why are your children serving God? Because we can live vicariously through our children. Right? Number four, who is Jesus? Is he just the descendant of David? You say, well, he's the son of David. You're headed in the right direction, but it's not enough. But he is the Lord in the flesh. And if you're saying he's the son of David and he's the Lord in the flesh, you are on the right track. He's both man, he's both divine. And listen, the readers here are being challenged by this, and we are being challenged to have a right view and understanding of who Jesus is. He is the the true God-man, God incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us. Question number five, is it time for me to stop arguing with Jesus and believe that he really is the son of God, the Christ, the Messiah? My friends, this this is the, the question that we're hammering every time we're coming to the text of scripture, in particular in Mark. And Mark is just saying, I wanna give you another demonstration of who Jesus is, look at him, Look at him. He is the son of God. Hear him. See what he does. See what he says. Hear what he has to offer. And in believing, are you willing to repent of your sins and bow before him as Lord and Savior? 
Let me leave you this morning with what we read earlier, Acts chapter 2, verses 34 through 36. Peter on the day of Pentecost, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain. Let all the people gathered at Gateway Bible Church this morning know for certain that God has made both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He is the lens by which we look at all of scripture. He is the one that we're seeking to understand. He is the one that brings satisfaction. He is the hope for the world. He is the answer for our problems. He is the the one that we desperately need. And he is God's son sent to this earth for the purpose of being that sacrifice once for all. Lord, help us today as we've considered Jesus and his words and his encounter with these scribes to be aware of all the kind of false teaching that is out there and the way that even even religious people under the same umbrella even as Christianity can be promoting and presenting things that are far removed from the truth of God's word. May we hear from your lips, may we hear from scripture what it is that you desire to say. Thank you, Lord, for preaching this sermon. Thank you for allowing us to be able to, to, to contemplate on, on what you have said to these scribes. And may we stand back in wonder and amazement and thankfulness at the kindness of your grace toward us in drawing us to yourself. You are a good and gracious God, and we don't deserve you, but we worship you in your precious name.